Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 57 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's Mom. Without a doubt, I learn something from every single guest I have on this show. For all 57 episodes, I can pick out something specific that I really feel like I have learned and can bring with me going into the future, into my healing. Today's guest is so special to me. When I first heard from her and then went and visited her Facebook page, I realized that this is a woman who really knew how to mourn well. Despite the fact that she is only two months into her grief journey, I have never witnessed mourning in quite the way she does it. It just seems that every aspect of her grief journey is so intentional. I just was blown away. So for all of you listening today, keep a special mark on this episode so that if you do know someone who is starting down that grief journey, whether it's a loss of a child or loss of someone else very special to them, please have them listen to Hunter's mom and hear the very special way that she honors him and honors her own grief. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on today, Luna. I really appreciate it. I am excited to learn more about Hunter. Yeah, thanks for having me. Why don't you start out by telling us about Hunter and initially, actually, even about getting pregnant with Hunter? So I was a woman who always wanted children, always knew I would have a child at some point in my life, but it was a challenging process. And I partnered with someone in my 30s who didn't want children and married him under the assumption that he would agree to to having a child and after several really difficult experiences with him of just kind of that not happening I did a performance actually where I really kind of reclaimed myself and the journey that I'd been on as a woman and I and I stood in the center of this room at the end of that performance and said I'm a mother and everything about my life just fell apart after that because I couldn't be married anymore. I had to Mm -hmm. pursue motherhood um, above and beyond being married to this man. And I was like, okay, what's more important? I remember this very strong moment of like, what's more important being a mother or being married? And I was like, oh, being a mother. It was like, no question, even though it meant losing everything. I left, I lost my house. I left, I lost everything, community. And I just woke up one day and said, I I don't really need you to do this. I can do this on my own. And I don't Mm -hmm. know why I didn't know I could do it on my own prior. I think of myself as a very uh, alternatively minded person who's seen all kinds of different ways of having families. But for some reason, it never crossed my mind that 
you didn't have to have a man to have a, a baby that you could do it on your own. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I left the marriage and I struck out on my own in a little itsy bitsy apartment. And about four months after I left him, I was trying to get pregnant on my own and chose a donor and started doing inseminations. And it's a really, um, it's a rocky process, whether you're doing it, you know, with a partner, but doing it without a partner. Yes. The way that I got through the process was that I've always, I've been an artist and a writer. And so I just gave myself some disciplines around painting a little image every day that kind of tracked what I was experiencing. And it was, so now I have 365 images that I made, giving myself the parameter of four by six inches and no more than five. I had to do five minutes a day. Anything more was okay, but not less. And, uh, and every image had a name. And so, you know, some days it was like the roller coaster or the fog or feeling bloated or disappointment. Um, so sometimes it was emotions and sometimes it was the process, but it took me a year to get pregnant. And Mm -hmm. it was a very, very, difficult process to do without really much support at all. I was just, I just basically, when I divorced him, I divorced, I really divorced everybody. I divorced my mom. I divorced every. I was like, okay, I'm just starting over. And that was a weird thing I did, but it was somehow important to claim what I wanted. And in the middle of that process, I met my partner who became Hunter's other mom. And and she just was so the opposite of my husband. She just like got on board a hundred percent and just said, what can I do? I'm here. I'll do anything to help you. And it was like, whoa, okay. That's awful wonderful. But I was yeah. a hormonal, sort of a hormonal disaster because it was just, you know, I was taking Clomid and it was just like, ugh, it's just such a, it was just a rocky road. But when I got pregnant, it was just this feeling of like, I, I always knew I would be pregnant. I never doubted it. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, I had a doctor that was just like, oh, you're old and your eggs are old and good luck with that. I mean, he was really not a very positive guy. Uh, his nurses were positive, but he wasn't. And I was going to say, how is he a good fertility specialist with having a not positive attitude? But if he puts positive people around him, maybe that helps. Yeah, I didn't appreciate him so much, but but I got pregnant and, and I had a really um, pretty basic, you know, a relatively non-eventful uh, pregnancy, thank goodness, and was just delighted. I was such a delight to walk around pregnant. It was like, finally, you know, 20 years later, I was here, and I gave birth at home. He came early. I was really, I got really huge. Like, I was, I'm only five foot two, but he, I gained like 45 pounds, and and I was just like, dude, you are like way too big. Oh, and the, the the funny part about that story is that I was using donors and you you choose donors out of a basic mail order catalog. It's a very funny little thing where you just go and say, what characteristics do you want? And you read these little short little interviews. So by the time I'd gotten to the like 10th try, the doctor said, maybe you should change to a different donor. And my therapist said, well, why don't you just call the sperm bank and a- ask them who the best donor is? And I was like, you can't do that. And she was like, why not? And so we actually did call the sperm bank and say, who's the guy with the best sperm? <laughs> and <laughs> my partner was, she was, she had been a medical director for a, a, a hot, for a clinic. And so she was like, I'm, I can talk to those people. So she calls them up and she's like, just send me down to the lab. They'll tell me. And indeed they told us. And so we got the sperm, but we didn't know 
anything other than that he was Caucasian. We didn't know anything about him. And we just said, okay, he's got good sperm. We'll get, and I got pregnant. And then about two months after I got pregnant, we were like, well, maybe we should find out about this guy. And he was six foot four. Oh my goodness. And you're five, two. (laughs) Holy. And everybody in his family was over six feet, including his mom. And I was like, "Uh Oh, (laughs) like this is going to be a huge baby (laughs) and totally Irish Catholic family. And I'm Jewish. And it was like, okay, this is cool. But by the time I was 37 weeks, which is the cutoff point for being able to do a home birth, I was like talking to him and I'm like, honey, I'm really, you're really big. And like, if you don't come out soon, I'm going to be like having to go to the hospital to deliver you. And I don't want to do that. Yeah. And we had this little conversation one morning and then boom, my water broke and he was born at home six hours, 12 hours later, he was easy birth. I mean, not easy, no birth is easy, but not complicated birth mm-hmm. other than the fact that after he was born i ended up in the hospital but that was just because my placenta wouldn't come out and so he oh. was fine and no drugs no nothing and then i go there and i'm like i'll take the morphine now yeah <laughs> please but you know he was a kiddo that just had a very he was such a joy he's he was never a challenge like i remember saying probably when he was about 13 or 14 i remember saying he's been so easy, you know, compared to all these kids that I know that have had just challenge after challenge, or they go through these cycles where they're just super duper oppositional for their parents or whatever. He was never like that. Just a very, very sensitive, very sweet, very loving. He, he was the kid that was always, every teacher, every year at his school, he went to a private Jewish day school. Every year they would come out and say, Hunter is the kid that will pick up the younger child who just fell off the playground. He's the kid Mm -hmm. that will pick up their coat and bring it to them. He's the kid that has his eye out for someone who might need his help. And Mm -hmm. every year it was the same thing. It was fascinating that every teacher saw that in him. And it was his blessing and his curse because he was so sensitive that it was very hard to be a boy who was so sensitive. Mm -hmm. And I didn't find out until just, just a couple of weeks before he died. I didn't find out that he had been bullied uh, as young as first and second grade mm-hmm. for being so sensitive and for being a kiddo that just, you know, like he came to school one day with painted toenails because he has like 16 mamas and aunties and mamas. He has just yeah. lots of women in his life. And we're like painting our toenails, just like paint mine, of course, you know, like who wouldn't, what kid wouldn't do that? Sure. And he got teased for it. And, and it just started this, I think this internal process for him that became you know, I think about Brene Brown's work a lot around how shame is developed. And it's like he started at that age to, I think, internalize the sense of something's wrong with me or there's something not right. And because of how sensitive he was, because he would cry easily, um, because he was so empathic and he would sense other people's pain. Like he was the kid that would come up to me and he'd go, are you okay, mama? Mm-hmm. Are you okay? And and I'd be like, well, because I'm very emotional. And I'd be like, well, today was kind of hard, honey. He's like, okay well, let me sit with you. You know, I mean, that's yeah. who he was. He he was very tuned in. And so as he grew, I would say by the time he hit, you know, middle school, middle school got, even though he was in the same school, it was a small class. And, you know, when you only have like three or four other guys to be your friends to choose from, yeah, it's going to really work or it's going to really be challenging. And And I thought it was working for him. But in retrospect, I see that, you know, one or two of those guys were not particularly sensitive to him. And so he started again to develop this sort of, maybe it's a protection or just a sense of like, I'm, I'm too soft on the inside. I don't know how to manage that or I feel too much. And so high school became a place where when he went into high school and the high school was just a bigger 
scarier place as social anxiety started to show up and I didn't know it was showing up. Again, these are things that you learn later. Yeah. And prior to that, he was a kiddo that we traveled all over the world together. And he, he was just, he's our only child. He just enjoyed seeing the world and being part of exploring. Mm-hmm. Not a, not an overly adventurous kid. He certainly wasn't an adrenaline junkie uh, and quite different in personality than I am. I'm very, I've always been super adventurous and he was more of a kid that needed to be rooted in home. Yeah. And so when I kept trying to think like, oh, let's do more activities. And he'd be like, you know, <laughs> I'd be like, uh, it was good, hard. Thanks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that was a difficult challenge, but to know how to be with a kid who didn't have as much innate drive. I have a lot more intrinsic motivational process inside of me. And I think what happened, part of what happened in high school was that because he couldn't navigate all those feelings and being in his body was really hard for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, I see in retrospect, like it became really hard to just know how to feel all that he was feeling. And so when you're in your body fully, you're feeling all that stuff. And so he started smoking pot and and that got, that increased as he got older and that became, you know, it became a battle. It was like, and he thought that it was helping him navigate anxiety and navigate when in fact it was causing anxiety and causing nausea. And Mm -hmm. he only realized the extent to which that was true just a couple months ago when he finally stopped smoking pot and he realized like, Oh my God, I don't have any nausea anymore. I was like, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to say I told you so, but I I told you so. And then we got divorced when I was, uh, when he was 12 and and that was a big transition. Of course, that's a, that's a hard one. I partnered with another woman and, and he seemed to navigate it really well, but there's so much that you don't know is going on in your kid. Yeah, that's hard. You know, I think there's a lot that was gained and lost in that transition from going to from a household that was stable and constant to one that was two places divided. You know, it's not the ideal world for anybody Mm -hmm. to be divided like that. And in some ways, I think he liked having two households, and in a lot of ways, he didn't. And it was dislocating to his ability to get to school and hang out with people and wherever he was. You know, you just at that early age before you're driving, then there's just this sense of like, how do I get around? And that is a tough age, that kind of age before you can drive, but when you have a lot of autonomy in other ways as well. So you just don't have great control. And I mean, that's just challenging for all that age, that those early teen years. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when he went to college, he went to college um, at Oregon State right out of high school. And it was a rough really rough transition, just super, super rough, because all of a sudden he went from having a home where he knew the energy in that home to being in a dorm where there was so much going on Mm -hmm. energetically. And because he, I mean, truly he, I I don't really even think I still understand the extent to which he was an emotional sponge for everything around him. And he couldn't, he could not tell the difference between his anxiety and everybody else's anxiety and of course, there's a ton of anxiety just in in his age group right now, oh, yeah. as well as in college in general. And and so it was it was a cycle for him of starting to feel better and then and then getting sick because it would just hit his immune system, mm-hmm. um, and then not having anybody there to take care of him, and being alone in a dorm with people that were really insensitive to him being not feeling well and. 
not even having a bathroom in your room, you know, all that stuff that just makes it super hard. So we basically moved him into an apartment about six months into college and just tried to give him more control over his environment and, and help him. But you know, the, the cannabis addiction definitely continued to play a role mostly, I think from a both nausea perspective, but also from a motivational perspective, it just has an impact on your motivation. Absolutely does. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he, Amazingly, I don't know how he was not ever a super academic kid. It was, you know, he didn't have the confidence. Like he would say, I don't want to stand out. And what I realized later was that he didn't want to stand out because he was afraid of being criticized. So even, even standing out for being smart was to him a spotlight that he was uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. And that of course causes problems when you're going to college or any schooling, when people are asking you to participate and, if you don't yeah. feel comfortable participating, you know, so he would, he would, you know, he tried a lot of different things to navigate social anxiety. He was very open to the people I connected with him to, or we had a coach for him and a therapist and we worked with different energy healers and just trying to teach him how to navigate that permeability of his kind of psychic space in a sense. I don't know how else to describe it, but he was just he didn't know how to set boundaries literally with people, but also energetically. And so he was really flooded a lot and yes. trying to figure it out. And then he would numb out by smoking pot. Or So it was a very, very, very rough two and a half years. I talk to parents a lot about that, that concept of just being emotionally flooded and how kids can just get so overwhelmed that they are just full of emotions and then have no idea where to turn. So I can see why he would want to feel like numbing it would be a good option. You know what, that's why you might think that obviously it ends up, it's not a good option because just numbing it doesn't really help that flood of emotions. It just kind of pushes it back for a little while. Yeah. And like one of the things I learned with him was that like when he was at home, I would get him massages or acupuncture or things that were really embodied practices and they Mm -hmm. really helped him. But when he was in college, it was like, boy, what a hard thing was, you know, he he turns 18, he goes to college and suddenly all my ability to have control or to have a say over what he does is gone. Gone. Totally gone. He was a very communicative kid, which was great. And, and I, you know, it's like, I would get calls five or six times a day, a lot of times, because I was one of his, you know, I was his primary support system, but he didn't have as many, like I would say, it's, would it help to go get a massage? Like, yeah, that would help. Okay. Well, how are we going to get you there? And then it became this just bigger struggle. Yeah. And sometimes he would, you know, and he'd feel better, but he, he just, it was like taking the lesson of what it meant to get a massage and how that helped him in then practicing something different in his apartment or in his schooling and mm-hmm. you know, trying to teach him how to just do some mindfulness practices or do something. And, you know, it's easier to smoke a joint than it is to meditate and practice, you know, and feel what you feel when you meditate. And, and that was a constant pull. So it became, it became challenging. And then the summer especially in that community, in that college community, if you are, if you are given the choice of hanging out with friends and smoking a joint or saying, no, I'm going to go get acupuncture or a massage, they're going to look at you like, what? 
Yeah, or I'm going to go take a walk because I feel really anxious. And I've, I've learned that if I take a walk or I go play Frisbee, I feel better, which is part of what he started learning this summer, which was so cool. But but this summer, he was really spiraling. And I just, I, I just, I finally laid down the law and said, you need help. You know, we need to get you into some help. And and uh, it took a lot. He, he had so much resistance to the idea of being in a residential treatment program. And I said, you know, it, it, if you don't address the the cannabis situation and the trauma associated, like what's causing the social anxiety. If you don't, you know, if you don't address the anxiety, then you won't be able to deal with why, why this addiction is so gripping. And, and so he finally went and he started, it was not an easy road. I mean, I don't think anybody's recovery process is easy, but he, he did a five week program and started to really, he was both kind of, I felt like he was both finding his autonomy. Like he was setting some boundaries with us that were like, nope, I don't want you to have any conversations with anybody unless I'm there, which was frustrating. But on the other hand, it's like, okay, I, I get it. Yeah. And he, what he chose to work on wasn't necessarily what I wanted him to work on, but you know, he's 21, he gets to do what he wants. And so it was just honoring, like you're there, you're doing the work. And he made some really good friends, which was huge. And he had been home only a week when he died. And we still don't actually know why he died or what he died from. We know that he took something and we don't know whether he took something that interacted with a medication. He was, he took a, and he took an anti-anxiety med. He took a benzodiazepine, which we were desperately trying to get him off of. Mm-hmm. And if I could, if I could do anything in the world, it would be eliminate benzodiazepines from the world mm-hmm. because it is such an addictive medication. And then part of the addiction to it is that anybody who has a benzo addiction becomes panicked at the idea of not having it. Yes. So it creates the panic attacks it's supposed to prevent. He was dependent on it. He wasn't an addict in the sense that he went out and kept using more and more of it. It was just that he was very dependent on it. Yes. And so we don't know. He died in his sleep. We don't know if he died from a combination of something that he normally took, but reacted differently in his body because of being free of cannabis for six weeks. We won't have a toxicology report for another couple months. And that's really frustrating and difficult. And Because how long has it been now? Not even two months. Wow, that how difficult that must be to have that waiting game of not knowing. Not knowing. And, and yet, you know, I there's just things where I'm like, he died at home. Mm-hmm. He could have died in Corvallis. He could have died without people there. He could have and I was reading a story today about somebody whose son was killed by ISIS in France. And I'm like, oh my God, like there's so many worse things that could have happened that I'm, I know it yes. sounds weird, but it's like, I'm grateful that we got to be with him and we surrounded him. I mean, he was, you know, they brought in the parametric paramedics and that didn't do, they couldn't revive him, but at least the people that loved him most were surrounding him and being with him and talking to his spirit and just telling him how much we loved him and being able to touch him and cry with him and you know all of that is horrifying and so much better than the alternatives yeah you know I mean it's hard when you're when you can't that's for sure absolutely I mean or or you know car accidents or things where people you know where children are so disfigured or whatever the situation or just gone you know I mean people lose people all the time and they're just gone they're gone in a plane accident a boat accident they're just gone well I mean our car accident I I never did get to hold him I never got to touch him I mean I regret not asking 
not asking to see him right then. But, you know, it's it's tough because it's like, you know, it's a crime scene kind of. And exactly. and he and it would have been very awful, I know, to see. But yet as a mom, right. you want that because you want to be there. Yeah. And then you're faced with all those horrible decisions and you're trying to make horrible decisions at a time when. Yes. And and one of the decisions that we made that was so so Tony and I, his other mom, were divorced, but we had interestingly just two weeks before we had she w- she had refused to interact with my current wife, and just she was just in pain over it. Still eight years later, and two weeks before he died, we had started doing family therapy together. The oh three really? Of us, the mm. three of us, meaning Amy and Tony and myself, to help Hunter and be on the same page with Hunter, so that when he re-entered we were all we wanted him to be part of it but he had said no you guys do the work which I thought was kind of funny yeah so having done that having done three sessions prior to him dying made it so much easier oh I'm sure in the same space and to navigate this horrible situation and we had to make a lot of decisions obviously like anybody does really fast and one of the decisions we made was that we wanted we knew that he would be buried in a Jewish cemetery and in a Jewish fashion but we wanted I just feel really strongly about doing green burials, that doing elaborate caskets and things that just kind of cloak the reality that someone has died doesn't work for me. It it works for some people and that's great, but it doesn't work for me. And so we, in the Jewish tradition, one of the beautiful pieces of it is that there are volunteers that have been trained in a process of bathing and shrouding and blessing someone who's deceased. And so our rabbi, really talked with us through that process and and he did that process and we chose to not use a box or a casket or anything and to just have him on a board and it was very impactful to have you know to really see a form mm-hmm. at the burial i mean that was when i really lost it was you know you really see that this is a body being put into the ground and how real that is especially because he was six foot two and he had size 15 feet. And, you know, you can't really hide size 15 feet from view. And family members had created a beautiful garland over his body. And it was, I mean, it was beautiful. And yet it was real. It wasn't cloaked in some feeling of like, this isn't really what's happening. It's like, this is really what's happening. And three days after he died to try to put your kid in the ground is a, it's a horrible experience. It's horrible. And to try to, you know, like I, re- I wrote and read a eulogy, which is, I don't know. My brother was like, I don't know how you did that. I don't know how you even wrote anything. And I'm like, I don't know how I wrote it either. I don't feel like I really wrote it. I feel like it just came through me. And I just, mm-hmm. luckily I write every day. So it, writing is an easy um, expression for me, but still it was a very, I wouldn't have had it any other way. Like yes. to me to have a service and not say something as hard as it is would have been really awful. Yeah, Eric and I spoke too, and people were really surprised and couldn't believe that we did. And and never did either of us consider not. I mean, it just seemed like it's the last thing we could really do for him. Exactly. And to be able to share your love like that, I couldn't just sit there. I just couldn't. And I know a lot of other people... That's all they can do. And that's totally fine. But for me, I had to. There was just not another option in my head. And it sounds like you kind of felt that way too. Mm -hmm. I think the more you, you know, sometimes it's just the culture around you. 
you know, the rabbi was very supportive and said, you know, he didn't say like, you got to do this, but he said, you know, it's, it's useful. It's useful for each of you. And each one of us spoke. So, you know, Tony and my, my current wife, Amy and his Hunter's stepbrother spoke and his grandmother spoke and, you know, and it was just giving each of us a moment was so meaningful. And, and actually what, you know, given COVID, it's such a, I've been just like, damn COVID, you know, so many times. Yes. And yet because of COVID, you know, we were able to have like 60 people at the grave site, which was wow. kind of surprising. Um, and, you know, people were spaced out, but it still felt like, it still felt comforting that people were close enough, but we had 300 people on Zoom, which, you know, without COVID, we never would have even thought of that option. I think now funerals throughout the world are going to change because you can do that. Mm -hmm. You can have the live event and the remote event and they can be simultaneous. And so that was really helpful Mm -hmm. for those, for, for people that couldn't be there or felt like it was not a safe, you know, they, they felt too compromised from, from a COVID perspective to be present. That's interesting to have that insight because yeah, with Andy, certainly our church was just overflowing and they had just left the doors open. And so there were people that were like, just like standing outside and trying to listen. And then other people told me they went to their own churches and just prayed for us during that time because they couldn't get in. But we didn't even consider that as an option. I mean, never in the furthest recesses of my mind would I have thought, well, perhaps we should put this on YouTube so people can watch it and not if they're not there. Like now our church is on YouTube every single week. So I'm sure, I mean, it had the same thing happened post-COVID because our pastor had said, you know, our church is likely not going to be big enough. There'll be people that won't be able to come in. And what would he have said now? Now he would have said, we'll stick it on YouTube, send out a link, people can watch. Never, never did we think of that beforehand. So you're right. Mm-hmm. Some interesting, I think there's some interesting things we're, we're all learning about how to include people into situations that couldn't be there otherwise. I mean, I had people watching in Australia and Germany and mm-hmm. so that was really powerful. And I, I think the other thing that was really so helpful, besides the fact that I just, I have an amazing community of people that just stepped in and just handled things. Yeah. In, in such an amazing way and just gave me so much space to to just be with what I needed to be with, which was just the devastation I was experiencing. And but in you know, we did we did the seven days of Shiva, which just was such a powerful container for allowing people to come and just sit with us and share stories. And uh, we did one night that was dedicated to his friends and 20 of his friends all spoke. And we were all outside because of COVID. So we had these, we'd set up these can, I shouldn't say we, I did not set up canopies, but people set up canopies and created a beautiful space. And yeah, I recorded the whole thing because each of these friends were, you know, I think Hunter was one of those kiddos that didn't know how much he was loved. He didn't know what kind of impact he had. And he was the kid that would be like, dude, you're drinking too much and I'm taking your vodka away from you. And you can't drive home because you're not, you're not sober. Like, no. And he he would take his friend's keys and say, nope, if we have to sleep, if we have to sleep on the living room floor of our friend's house, we're going to sleep here and you're not driving anywhere. Like that's who he was, Mm -hmm. which is part of the irony of the fact that 
he he died from something that he would have prevented all of his friends from taking or doing so it's kind of a mystery that piece is a mystery but you know i'm grateful that we've had this community and that his friends one of his friends in particular is someone i spend a fair amount of time with and i just am working with him i got him into aa and helping him kind of toe the line of sobriety and he said to me the other day he said you know i feel hunter patting me on the back for every day that i'm sober and i was like right on (laughs) how cool is that wow that's great that is nice for you to be able to get a little bit of that to be able to help someone Mm -hmm. you know the thing that's been interesting is how much people have experienced hunter since he died there's just this sense of like people are like yeah, I had a dream about him or he came to me in a certain moment that I was just really having a hard time. And this is his friends, you know, who don't necessarily have some, a spiritual perspective on which Mm -hmm. to lean. That's been very interesting. And the sharing that happened during Shiva was partly like, who is this kid and learning about him? You know, when your kid dies, you learn things that you didn't know. Mm-hmm. because people around people that had experience with him teachers and students and friends and family members will share stories and you're like wow I never heard that story before and isn't that amazing yeah I mean, it's like it's so bittersweet you know mm-hmm. just make it mm-hmm. and it just made me sad you know but also happy to know them know the stories you know and then there's just the reality of dealing with one of the things that I felt like right away it was like what do I do with his stuff what do I do with how can I go through it and I I still have a hard time just looking at pictures of him when he was younger or like I don't it's interesting I don't have as because I've been doing these shrines every day at his grave and I which I can't wait for you to talk about because wow so I've been using pictures that are current of him and then Mm -hmm. just in the last two week just last week I started I found pictures of him, like his school pictures from out different years. And so I've started to use those pictures, but it's been really, that's been hard looking back on the, the baby and the toddler and the, the, yeah. the young kiddo. That's well, cause you think of your life back then and his life back then. And like you said, it's just bittersweet and it's just so hard because you just long to go back there, right? Long to go back and be able to live it again. Mm-hmm. Exactly. When you just can't. So talk about what you've been doing at his grave. Yeah, so when Shiva ended, one of the things that's interesting about Shiva is that, again, it's just a, it's a time where people come and, and sit with the mourners. And the, the expectation is that the mourners don't have to do anything. It's just your job is to come and be of support. And if the mourner talks to you, then you you talk or listen, but otherwise you you stay quiet. And at the end of that time frame, it's kind of a ritual walk around the block to say this period of mourning of intense, not doing anything, not integrating with life at all. This seven days is is over. Mm-hmm. And when it was over, it was like, now what? You know, just feeling this sense of like I didn't have anything I could figure out how to structure my life. Mm-hmm. And I knew I owned my own company and I was like, I can't, I can't go back to work. Like I'm a financial planner. I can't like think about numbers. And mm-hmm. I was supposed to actually transition my business. I'm, my business is moving to a different broker dealer. So it's like the parent company. And that was supposed to happen on the day of his service. And I was like, obviously this is not going to happen. 
and so I I went up to his grave that day after Shiva ended and I there was a, a bouquet of flowers that you know one of those typical kind of stands of flowers that they put at a grave site and it was starting to fade and I was like and, and I, you know I've spent a lot of time in my life I my first in my 20s I was a, a visual artist so I've always been a person that just kind of takes things apart and does whatever I want to do with them. So I was like, I'm taking this thing apart. And I'm like, oh, well, why don't I just lay the flowers that are still good out on the grave? You know, like they only give you this itsy bitsy little marker and there's no headstone in the Jewish tradition. There's no headstone until typically a year later. Uh, it can be any time in the year, but most of the time people wait for a year. And and I was like, well, that just seems insignificant. This little tiny marker that made me really sad. And I was like, there's nothing here that really, and the marker was wrong too. It had the wrong date of death on it. And it really pissed me off. So I was like, how can I make this place beautiful so that people will enjoy it and want to be here and, and that it serves me, me and my grieving process. So I just basically started pulling all the petals off of these flowers, which was actually therapeutic in and of itself it was just appropriate, you know, just like I'm pulling all these petals apart and I'm just starting to make this design. And when I look back on the very first one, I'm like, wow, that looks really bare. <laughs> because as I went, you know, then the next day I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do some more and I would bring flowers. And then the next day I would bring rocks and then the next day I'd bring fabric. And then the next day it was something else. And, and every day I've gone up there and every day it changes. I, I do something different. I actually, yesterday or two days ago was the first day I stopped going. And that's because the weather in, in Portland just changed dramatically and it's mm-hmm. boring. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to move indoors. So now I'm doing indoor shrines instead mm-hmm. of outdoor shrines. And I actually went to Key West for 10 days and I did shrines on the beach every day. Um, and so that was my uh, I just kind of moved it and I took his pictures and I found wonderful butterflies and things that were kind of part of how he's been showing up and just everywhere I go, if I can't be at the graveside, then I do something at home. But the whole feeling of it is to people who've been sending stones. So I've asked people to paint rocks and it's a Jewish tradition to put stones on graves. And so I was like, you know, paint a stone for him and send it to me and I'll put it on there. So now there's, I don't know, 30 stones on there at least. And I keep moving it around. When I do go up there, I kind of had to shift it so it didn't have as many fresh flowers on it and things that would blow away because it's getting windy and wintry yeah. here. And so, so I've just shifted it, but it's been a very, it's really my place to create it's like i'll go up there and i'll be really sad and i'll just start bawling and then i'm like well wait a second just start working on it and you know i might take everything off and start over i might just rearrange things and the act of doing that changes the energy i'm feeling it just shifts the grief mm-hmm. and and i and then for for 30 days another jewish tradition that's really lovely is that there's a 30-day period from the burial the date of the burial where you say Kaddish, which is the the prayer, which is very interesting because that prayer is not a, it's said for the, it's said at the death of someone, but it's not a prayer about dying. It's a prayer about living. It's a prayer that says, how am I going to make my life meaningful? How am I going to move forward? I need to take this and go on. I didn't die. It basically is what the prayer is saying. It's like, Although my loved ones died, I have not died and I have to keep living. 
Mm. And so every day that I would go up there and still now I complete whatever I'm doing. And then I, I say, I say that prayer and it's, um, it just gives me so much calm. I mean, I'll leave there and I'll be like, wow, I'm, I'm just grounded. And I often would, you know, I'd take my shoes off and just be on the earth because that feels very grounding to me to just keep my feet in the grass or on the sand or wherever I am and make the connection. And like when I was in Key West for 10 days and doing these things on the beach, it was so funny. Like I was just I'd be driving some, I'd be on my little scooter and I'd be driving to the beach that I thought I wanted to go to. And suddenly there'd be like downpour and I'd be like, huh, maybe I'm not supposed to go that way. You know, and then I'd go another direction because the, the rain there would be like, so it rained in one block, but not in the other block, you know, and I'd turn and Uh like half a block later, there's no rain. And some days, some days I would just be like this. And one day I was driving down the street and I'm like, oh my God, that's Hunter's cat. Like Hunter had this very unusual gray almost persian looking cat that you never see anywhere and this cat walks out and and walks right up to me and it was hunter's cat and i was like huh that's really bizarre and then like later amy was like i've never i have not seen a cat anywhere in key west and i'm like well there's one cat here and i found him and he he looks just like hunter's cat and each time i would be guided and then like i would go to the and then i'd be like okay i'm not supposed to go to that beach because it's pouring so i'm going to go over here and then i'd get over there and i'd get on the beach and literally rainbow right in front of me. Mm. Like, or I would finish the shrine and I'd look up and the first day I was there, I looked up and there were two dolphins and, and I didn't see dolphins the entire time, except for that moment. And it was the moment I finished the shrine. Wow. So there were a lot of these little synchronicities that just felt very confirming of like, this is a good thing to be doing. This is, it's not just good for me, but it was just grounding. And then like one day I had an osprey that just came and just was like there in the palm tree right over me. It just stood and stared at me for like 10 minutes. And, and I was getting a sore neck because I was looking at it for so long. And then all of a sudden, and, and then I was like, okay. And it flew off and all it flew was like to the next palm tree. And then it just stood and it just kept looking at me and at, at the shrine that I had created. And, and the shrine that particular day was a heart in the sand and I wrote, I miss you with my finger. And then I, I stuck little um, sea grasses. So the sea grasses were waving in the words, if that makes any uh, sense. Mm-hmm. And that's when the osprey showed up. So there were a lot of, I've had a lot of interactions just with nature. That makes you feel close to him, doesn't it? Yeah, like that wouldn't have happened if I weren't outside, right? It's like mm-hmm. part of it's letting myself be in nature, which is very healing. And it's different now because it's like, okay, winter is starting to come in. And I'm like, hmm. So last night I was, I didn't go to the grave because it was pouring. And I was like, what am I going to do? So I created this mandala on my dining room table. It's a circle made out of flower petals and feathers. I couldn't, I've never been able to use feathers at the grave because if it does rain or if they blow away, it's just pointless. So yeah, yesterday was all these feathers and flower petals. And it was just, and I just put a picture of him in the center of it and and every time I do it, I just find that I'm very s- settled afterwards. Mm-hmm. Like it mm-hmm. just settles my my sense of loss. Mm-hmm. So it's beautiful. So beautiful. I know when I've seen pictures that you've posted to Facebook, because now I've been looking, <laughs> they are just so inspiring to me. 
I also feel that way about your writing, too. You've written some really beautiful things, and you've written um, things about advice giving to others, like people who are trying to comfort those who are mourning, parents who have lost a child. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, too? Yeah, it's like early on, I was like pretty aware of like the first thing that happened was I'm so sorry for your loss. I was like, I wanted to punch people. I was like, stop it. You know, and I don't know why that particular saying, I think it's because it just feels so generic. It doesn't feel authentic. It just feels like it's as bad as saying, how are you to somebody who just lost their child? It's like, how am I supposed to answer that question? I can't answer how am I? How am I? Do you really want to know? Yeah. And what I've learned how to ask is, you know, what's today like for you? Mm -hmm. What's this moment like for you? Like that question feels like you actually care and you want to know versus you're supposed to ask me how I am. And, um, yeah, I'm very much bothered by that question now too. And people ask it all the time. And I, so I just, I give very odd answers. I know because I used to just say, Oh, good. And now I don't say that anymore because it just, I, I do hate it as well. I, it's it not true. just really bothers me. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm good. I'm not really good. I'm like, no. oh, crap. like, and what's good mean anyway? So, yeah. So, so early on, like in the first week, I just started taking note on like, when did somebody respond to me or what did they do that made me feel really seen and heard and supported? And when did they do something that did not feel that way? Mm-hmm. And, and then I just basically compiled those experiences and said, here's, here's what I'm noticing. You know, I'd yeah. much rather have somebody say, I don't know what to say, but I, I am just right here with you. Like, yeah, thank you. Like that yes. is perfect. You don't have to know what to say. God, my favorite does? thing was really, I have no words for you right now, but know that I'm here. I, yeah. that was my like friend. my favorite thing. It, w- it brings tears to my eyes now, even just having myself say it, because that was my absolute favorite thing, because they really were acknowledging that there was nothing that they could do to make it better. And they weren't even going to try mm-hmm. because it seems that the majority of people want to try to make things better in some way. And that is impossible. And that just makes me mad because exactly. even, even the idea <laughs> yeah. of you trying to make me feel better gets me irritated. Why are you trying to make me feel better? This is a really awful thing that has happened to me. Let me be sad. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's our, you know, it's our culture is so uncomfortable mm-hmm. with us just being in agony. It's like, okay, I'm in agony. My, one of my clients uh, came to Shiva and, and she just looked at me and she said, this sucks. And I was like, and I yes, just, it does. And I'm like, yes, thank you. Yeah. And, and she's just like, I am just, the only thing I can say is that my mom is up there with him having a good time, but this right here, this sucks. Mm -hmm. So that helped me. But yeah, I think part of my, I think because I've always been a teacher, I'm, I'm like, I know you don't know what to say. So let me give you some guidelines. Yes. And And I, I just so admire you for (laughs) feeling like you can do that very early on because most of us don't. Most of us just don't feel comfortable doing that. And that's a lot of what I have tried to communicate in the podcast of, unfortunately, grieving parents need to be the teachers because people don't know what to say. And the only way they're going to know is if we tell them. And that's what we have to do. So 
I talk about that a lot, but it's why I asked you so soon to be on because I felt like, my word, she's doing it already. She is doing this already. So this, it really is proof that you can just tell people what you need even very, very early in those first well, weeks and months. You know, I mean, yes. I don't know if you saw my post yesterday, but I posted that I was starting back to work and that I had a meeting with my new company and that I knew they didn't know what to say. And I didn't want them to say the things that were going to piss me off. So right. I was like, how do I, ha- you know, how, how do I cut this off at the whatever, you know? So I sent them, I you know I just sent them an email that just said, please don't say this. And here are some things that I think will help, you know, like your communication is going to need to be simple. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to hold details. Try yeah. not to, you know, if you do need to give me some really technical stuff, because I am transitioning my business and I have to move 600 accounts, it's a lot to deal with this week. Uh, you know, just follow it up with an email. Ask mm-hmm. me if I need that, that email again. Know that I might burst into tears. And if I do, I'll either go offline because I need to take care of myself or I'll be better in a minute and I'll let you know. Yeah. And, and don't say I'm sorry. sorry. Yeah, don't say I'm sorry. And I also said, you know, like if I get full, I'm going to check out and I'm just going to sign off. And, and I did. And I felt totally great about it because I had already told them that that yes. might happen, mm-hmm. you know, and I was on the call for like 50 minutes or 55 minutes. And I was like, that's plenty. I did did good job. <laughs> I was like patting myself on the back because I handled it for 55 minutes. And then I and was that's like, as much as you could do. Mm-hmm. I'm like, and what I am noticing, I've, I've coined a new term and it's called, it's emotional nausea. Yeah. I have, I will be in an environment where I'm like, whoa, I, it's like, I feel my, my body filling up with emotional nausea. Like it's just, it's almost like the same way physical nausea just feels like it's such a weird feeling because it's not like you don't really hurt, but you're mm-hmm. so uncomfortable mm-hmm. and you can't really function in the same way. Cause you're aware of this nausea. And so emotional nausea is my expression of when that flooding or that feeling of just like, I can't, there's no more room in me mm-hmm. to navigate casual conversations or details or, or just people doing life. Like in a grocery store, it can happen. Mm-hmm. Or if it happened that when we went out, we went out on a boat in Key West, because I was like, I really wanted to be on the water. I spent a lot of time sailing and I felt really like that would be good for me. But all around me on this boat were people that were just like talking and laughing. And all of a sudden I was just like, whoa. And I just kind of, I like, I just, I just looked at Amy. I was like, okay, I'm going to lose it. She's like, it's okay. You can lose it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I just yeah. was like, okay. And then I was better, but it was like, it's like, it's almost like you need to vomit, you know, like you have to just like let that grief out when it fills up like that. And mm-hmm. so for me, there's a big piece here about just honoring that grief is unpredictable, giving yourself an out and, and letting people know ahead of time that you're going to honor those feelings when they show up. And so if I need to go in the other room and wail for a couple, you know, 10 minutes, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And I'd rather feel it in the moment that it's arising, because if I stuff it down, it becomes work I have to do later. And I want to be present. So I just do that. And my friends have been amazing about it. And they're just like, cool, go for it. Yeah, <laughs> I had a very similar experience even yesterday. So I was uh, 
I was going to see a patient for the very first time. And we had just gotten a phone call about only like 45 minutes before she was going to come in that her mother had found a suicide note just days before that they had dealt with and gone to and um, had that had her evaluated over the weekend and a lot of stuff was happening. And I just knew that I could not support them in that at that moment. Like, I cannot give them the kind of care that they need right now. Because I was, like you said, I just felt I was just full. I was just full. And I read the note and I thought about, you know, all the parents that I've met who've lost their children to suicide. All those pictures are going in my head. And I'm like, I can't do this right now. And they need someone to really be there for them for this. So I ended up having to talk with, you know, I, of course, burst into tears. I'm in my office. I'm crying. And uh, I had to switch schedules with just another one of the doctors. I saw a, a sick little baby that I had to swab for COVID. And, and she saw this teenage girl. And and I felt terrible because obviously it was not a real fair switch because she was in there for an extremely long time. But I knew I couldn't give them what they needed. And I didn't want to do a bad job. And of course, I'm thinking to myself, I should do this, right? I understand that emotionality more than other people in my office. I can kind of get that more. But at the moment, I just didn't have the capacity to be able to give. And I felt like the last thing they need is for me to fall apart crying. I mean, I can't fall apart crying. They have no idea my son had ever died. They don't know a thing about me. So that would be completely awkward. So it's, it is nice to have people around you that totally understand because they just were very quick to, we're just switching this out. We're just switching this out and you can do something else that you can handle. And on another day, I might be able to do it. But at that particular moment, I just absolutely couldn't. Yeah. And I think, I think part of the key is honoring, you know, like I, I have to check in with myself often cause I'm a giver and an overgiver and it's like I have to check in and like do I have that to give right now yes that's what you're saying is it's like to honor that you didn't have it to give yeah and you don't want to go into an environment where somebody desperately needs your connection time yes and your reserves are zero that just doesn't serve anybody it would well, hurt you and, and hurt them potentially. and what what was really beautiful is the person that I ended up switching with it it was her half day yesterday it was the last patient so she spent a full hour with them I nice. mean a lot of time and she said I wouldn't have had to have you know because I went in and I said I'm so sorry I know that took you forever and you know I little thing took 15 minutes that I did for her and so I was feeling awful and she said no that was my choice I mean I I chose to do that they needed someone to be there to listen to them and I could have left the room and had them come back or not dealt with everything that they were that was going on but I chose to really be there for them and so it ended up it was such the right choice because there's just no way emotionally I could have been able to be the support that she could right it was it was a hundred percent the right decision and I'm so glad that she felt that way that she didn't feel like bitter or anything but anyway it's a really good lesson I think for all of us 
to keep in mind on when you have it to give and when you don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the big, I mean, grief is such a, a lesson in being present. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's one of the best when, when I'm truly in the moment, I have less angst, less agony, less heartbreak because Mm -hmm. in the moment, like this very second, you know, I'm looking outside and it's beautiful outside and I'm talking to you and I'm having a conversation and, you know, it's when I go future or when I go to the past that I get really messed up in my brain and my, my, everything in me hurts. But if I stay in the moment and I, a lot of it's gratitude. It's like, I, I have a gratitude practice every single day. I track a lot of things, but one of the things I track is like, what am I grateful for today? And what did I experience relative to Hunter that feels like a bit, it feels like a connection. It feels like a synchronicity. It feels like, you know, I might've written him a letter that day, or I might've, you know, I saw a butterfly that just came right up to the window or I had like, like three days, two days after he died, I had a hummingbird. I have hummingbirds in my yard, but I've never had a hummingbird like come up to me. And this hummingbird comes up and he's like, comes to my forehead and it's like, I'm like, whoa. And then he, really truly circled my head three times but each time stopped in front of my forehead and went around and and then and it was like the third time i swear to god i I heard did you get it i'm right here and then flew away so i keep track of all those things Mm -hmm. like because it gives me it's like if i'm having a bad day i'll go back and like yeah and there was this hummingbird and there's these butterflies and there's this osprey and there's the dolphins and there's connections and I can hang out in the loss or I can hang out in the connection. Which one do I want to hang out in? Yeah. You know, and, and one of the things I, I think I posted it early on. I can't remember, but I, I just felt like when I'm in the why, why did this happen? Why, 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 why I'm miserable. Yes. And yes. when I'm in the what now question, what now, what am I going to do with my life now? I, I'm not miserable. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm not like, I know the answer to what now, but it's, it's a forward moving kind of question. And why just gets me stuck in something that I can't answer anyway? Yes. Mm-hmm. I don't know what his soul's purpose was. I don't know why this happened the way it did. And I and can you won't. myself with that and I never will probably. Right. right? Yeah. So why torture myself with why? And instead just hang out and what am I going to do? now. Mm-hmm. Well, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your story. It, it is truly beautiful. And I love talking to you really enjoyed it. Thank you so so much. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening to losing a child always Andy's mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We're always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.